Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, his Broadway Bears burlesque review raises money for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, an organization that supports people diagnosed and living with HIV. In his first year, my guest and seven of his friends danced on a New York City bar and raised $8,000. To date, Broadway Bears has now raised over $17.4 million for Broadway Cares. You too can show you care by going to broadwaycares.org and making a donation. And now, welcome Jerry Mitchell. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the multi-Tony Award winning Broadway director and choreographer Jerry Mitchell. With a career that spans over three decades, Jerry began it all as a Broadway dancer and went on to become one of the most sought-after artists working in the musical theater today. He either wins or is nominated for a Tony Award for every project he touches. On Broadway, he is directed and choreographed On Your Feet, Kinky Boots, and Legally Blonde, and often works all around the world. He was the sole choreographer for Catch Me If You Can, Never Gonna Dance, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Gypsy, The Rocky Horror Show, The Full Monty, and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. His work can be seen on film in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Scent of a Woman, In and Out, and Camp, among others. And he choreographed the NBC Live production of Hairspray. He's helped to raise tremendous amounts of money for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS with his show Broadway Bears. And I'm so happy to welcome to the podcast my dear old friend, Jerry Mitchell. Little known facts. I'm so happy to be here. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You're one of the few people who would understand why this show is called Little Known Facts. Yes. <laughs> so the thing that is truly inspirational 
about being around you. And this is true probably for people just listening to your voice or people have had the opportunity to be near you or work with you is that I've never met someone who wakes up every day and comes in with such joy. (laughs) So whether that's true or you're one of the best actors in the world, (laughs) I like to think because I'm married to someone from the Midwest that there might be something about like growing up in Paw Paw, Michigan. Yeah that you brought with you to the big city. Definitely. I mean, I dreamed of being here, but when I look back and think about where I was raised and the kind of family that raised me, my parents, my father's still around, my mom's gone now, but not just my parents, my grandparents on both sides and my aunts and uncles and all of those people, I was raised with a very positive outlook, probably mostly from my mother and father and my grandparents, and a pretty balanced democratic outlook. (laughs) Well, that's happy making. So it sounds to me in my idealized version, romanticized version of it, it's like a teeny town where everybody knows each other. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows everybody's business. Is your your name your name? Were you Jerry Mitchell growing up? Yes. Okay. So did everyone know the Mitchells? Yes. My grandparents had a a bar. Uh, My grandparents on my father's side had a bar called the Friendly Tavern. Okay. And or, Enough said. Or called The Friendly Place. <laughs> and then when my grandmother died, um, when Grandma Mitchell died, and Grandpa Mitchell was already gone when I was very young, but Grandma Mitchell died, uh, my mom and dad took it over. My mom was working there already. My dad took it over, and it became Jean Mitchell's The Friendly Place. Unbelievable. Wait, did your parents grow up together in this town? They or did, did they... in Pawpaw. My mom was born and raised there. My dad, I think, was born in Chicago, but my grandmother, then he, she sent him to Pawpaw to live with cousins because he was acting up in Chicago. And then she moved there with the bar because she had a bar in the south side of Chicago, Polish. That's the Polish side of the family. So you're part Polish. Part what Polish. is your my, other... My mom's side of the family... Let's do a DNA my test right came, now. I just need from, a swab. <laughs> <yeah>. My grandfather <laughs> came from Sicily okay. with his sister and brother. They were in New York and Detroit. My oh. aunt worked here in the sweatshops. Is this on your mom's side? On my mom's side. Do you know what their last name was? Uh, Misaraka and Kusumano. And wow. and so they lived they lived um, in Long Island, and she worked here in New York in the sweatshops. And in the seam, she was a seamstress, a great seamstress. My grandfather went to Michigan with his brother Dominic, and they lived and grew up in uh, Detroit, and then settled in Pawpaw. And my grandfather actually was a winemaker. He made one of the first built one of the first wineries, the Papa Wine Company in Papa. Papa now has six or seven wineries. And really? It has a grape and wine festival. My grandfather was very, very involved in the politics in my little hometown community. He was a very smart immigrant. He owned a lot of property. And um, we grew up in the Misaraka subdivision, which was behind the winery. <laughs> and all of my relatives lived there. They when all had houses. When you say subdivision, so houses. It's like, okay. yeah, houses all in a circle that my grandfather plotted out. Amazing. And, you know, when he passed away, I was very interesting because he was very much about the community, which is we can get into later, but it's why I think Broadway Bears happened for me because I'm about the community. Sure. And I, I really learned that from him. And um, he had all of this land, and when he passed away, or when my mom passed away, actually, about five or six years ago, we were going through all the office papers that had been dusted right. and down there forever. I found the land plots. He was giving acres of land away for a penny to families that needed a place to build a house. And I thought, wow. 
And those, those plots in the subdivision, like I found a map, and he has names written in them and who he gave the land to. And he, when I was a kid, he had about 200 acres, a farm, asparagus, rhubarb, tomatoes. He grew everything. We Grapes, we picked all of that stuff. We harvested it. Uh, my aunts were in the yard peeling tomatoes and making spaghetti sauce. I mean, and then he would bottle that and ship that around. He was quite a, quite a businessman. Wow, that yeah. is incredible. Also, just that idea of when I really think about what it would be to go to a place where I don't really know the language, yeah. to come yeah. and sort of make your way and figure it all out and then just be so generous yeah. in that way, it's kind of extraordinary. Now, did they use the stuff that they farmed to cook in the restaurant? Well, my, my Or those two different sides two of the different family. Two different sides of the family. Okay. Although my, my Italian side also had a little restaurant, but they got rid of that right away when the wine company was opened. And did you grow up going to Friendly's and hanging out there? I spent my life in the bar. Basically, I was five. All of us, I have two older brothers. We all grew up in the bar. And my grandmother, my grandma Mitchell, and my mom, we, the great thing, one of the greatest things both sides of the family taught me was if I wanted a dollar... There was something to be done for it. So they taught me to work for a dollar. And usually that work was in the bar or around the bar. So when I was a kid, every Sunday, we were cleaning the bar, my brothers and I. We would go there and we'd chat our jobs. Now, I was five or six when I started. And my first job... Are you the youngest? I'm the youngest. And my first job, I had a bucket, a bar rag, and a putty knife. And I'd crawl under each table, scrape the gum off the bottom of the table into the bucket, take the bleach rag and wipe the bottom of the table and the and the and the you know the thing that holds the table right, up in the, the base, base yeah wipe the whole thing off and do that for all the bar tables that was the first job at five years old <laughs> five dollars and all the beef jerky I wanted my Delish. grandmother would give me delicious and um and then I and then I graduated to polishing the copper bar rail which was a much harder job. You needed some muscle. Sure. Put the put the brasso on it, let it dry, and then polish it off so that thing shines. I'm smelling it. Yeah. Like as it was you a, do it, it. And your hands smelled like totally. And I did it every Sunday. And then I learned to cook. I learned to pour draft beers at an age when you weren't supposed to pour yeah, draft no beers. Yeah, no child labor laws Finally and got to like mopping and sweeping the floors. But I literally worked in that place from the youngest days I can remember until I left town at 17. I was always working at the bar. Now I'm also imagining <clears> you like <throat> using the bar as a ballet bar where you also like and point and flex like when did well, this um, uh, you're no, also I, an I actually, unbelievable dancer. I actually danced more in my in our living room. Okay. But usually when everybody was gone we had a big picture window and at night it kind of reflected you so it was my mirror. The picture window in our family. Like, Nobody knows this really. I maybe told my brothers, or, but literally when they were out of the house, I would use the mirror as my picture. I mean, the w picture window as my mirror and dance in front of the picture window. Now the neighbors must have been seeing me across the street. <laughs> going, what like, the hell is that boy doing in there? It's like, you're like, no, this is just this. It's like actually a two-way mirror, Jerry, Fly, <laughs> flying through the living room. And I don't even want to know what you were kid, wearing I, when you yeah. were doing it. So, were you like a kid listening to Broadway cast albums, or was like, what were you dancing to? It's funny. I wasn't bitten by the bug till I was about ten. We had a community theater, and I went with my next door neighbor, Amy Firestone, because she watching was watching you through she the was window. In the 
show. Well, okay. she she was my best friend, and I went to her dance class when she was younger, and I learned to dance by watching her. You mean you'd like hang out while I, she had I'd class? I'd watch her take class, and then I'd come home and I'd teach her the steps. I didn't take them; I just watch. <laughs> you were right. But it was you basic. It was basic, basic tap, tap and baton, and she was. Not very good, and I I would learn it, and then I'd show her, and then I feel like I've seen this. And show. then like I was yeah, very Billy Elliot. And then right. I was ten, and I got involved in the Village Players because of her and the Music Man, and um, the choreographer was the local dance teacher, and this is very Billy Elliot. She would invite me to come take dance classes, and I wouldn't go because it was all girls, and I didn't want anybody to know I was gay, you know, at that age, and uh, although I knew I knew I was, and uh, so then eventually. I was riding home from football practice, racing my best friend, Pat Warner, and he was on a a, Ro- a Solex, and I was on a 10-speed chain bust, and I went over the handlebars and broke my collarbone. And so I took dance class at 15. That I couldn't play football. I My excuse was... I'll take class to keep my legs in shape for That's basketball. Right. That's right. It's like rehab. <laughs> yeah, rehab. It's just rehab. It was rehab. Right, so, physical therapy. So I, I went to dance class, and of course, when I got there, she was so smart. At the time, I didn't think about this, but when she was so smart, because I literally was the only guy in the class, she gave me all my classes for free mm-hmm. and paid me to come on Saturday mornings for three hours and teach basic tap to five, six, and seven-year-old girls. And then toe she was step, also like, if you could get the gum off the bottom yeah. of the table. <laughs> <laughs> so she literally wow. put the hook in my mouth. And then she I, re- saw. I, remember, she saw. I remember when I graduated from high school, she was at my graduation. And by now, you know, I danced for three years with her and learned every kind of move except ballet. I had no ballet. So... Uh, I said, thank you for teaching me how to dance. And she said, I didn't teach you how to dance. It was always in you. I just brought it out. And I was like, wah, 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 wah. You know, because that's really true. She gave me she gave me a, a place to express myself physically, which I didn't have. I didn't have that place. Right, or vocabulary yeah. for it. So did you also play football at the same time? I played time? all sports the whole you time did. through. So you were jock, yeah. jock city. I played sports uh, all the time. My brothers did. And I, I love sports. I, I think sports actually helped my dancing and my dancing helped my sports. So I think it was, that's true what they say. They're That's the same physical activity and they help your coordination. And senior year, I, I was in my senior year, two weeks in, and I got asked to tour the United States in a production of West Side Story with the Young Americans. So I left school. I left my senior year. Now I, I were we, they scouting like you were in they, Paw no, Paw, they, Michigan? They were in Kalamazoo on a break. Performing they were in Cal- at, forgive performing me. at the Miller Auditorium. Okay. I saw some of the kids who I had worked in summer theater with, and the young the young Americans have their home in Petoskey, Michigan. So they were starting their tour in Michigan. I happened to be there. I happened to see a couple kids. They said one of the dancers had hurt himself, might have to leave the tour. Come back with us. Milton Anderson's there who runs the Young Americans. Dance for him. I literally danced in the lobby, no music, jumping around. And he said, can you join us? And this was like a Thursday. On Sunday, we're leaving. And I went home bawling because my parents always stressed education first, education first. And I went home and I like said, you know, this is an opportunity I want to take. And they said, "Go go to school tomorrow and ask your principal if you can do it and still graduate. And if you can, we'll let you go. And, you know, my mom's bawling and my dad's going, oh, my God, what's happening? And I went to school and the principal said, well, of course you have to do this. 
And now I had all of my requirements to graduate except for government. That was the only thing I needed to take one semester. So I went on tour and kept records and took a journal and they gave me credit. And they came back, took the government exam, passed and graduated my class. Actually, the day I came back, it was April, I think, or maybe early May. There were like six weeks left. My best friend in high school, Andy Hamry, who I did all my sports with, kept they kept my number for the track team because I'd lettered as a I got my varsity letter when I was a freshman. I high jumped in a high hurdle. They kept my number. The day I got back, the next day, I went to an international meet at Western Michigan University, and I got like third in high jump and second in high hurdles. And I did the whole season of track and went to state and graduated. Okay. (laughs) Just boom. Boom. It was done. First of all. It's so amazing. Every name you've just said, I want to write down because I can't even, like, <laughs> my, my, my next school. novel, just, my school. just the name, just like Amy, and every single name is like, you can't make it up. Like, they're the most it's a specific. small, small town. It's a small town. But also, Jerry, you've just told this story of your high school senior year as if it happened yesterday, right? Like, that's, kind, yeah. I mean, you're a very young man, and maybe, <laughs> and obviously it only happened a few years ago, but still, like, for it to be right there is kind of amazing. And also, I talk about this a lot on the show about sort of that Malcolm Gladwell thing of the most successful people, when they sort of track it, and not to a person, had like this lucky thing happen. Yeah. And at least 10,000 hours doing the thing that the lucky break was for. Well, you know, I always say that. I say that there is no good luck or bad luck. There's opportunity and there's if you're prepared, you're going to have a very lucky day. Yeah. And if you're not prepared when the knock comes, you're going to have an unlucky day. And because you danced in your living room at night when no one was home, you could do it in the lobby you of that You never know when that knock's going to yes, come. Exactly. You know, you never know. And I think, you know, when I meet a lot of young people who get discouraged because they have a bad audition, or and, and I speak to a lot of young people, I always try to emphasize with them, you don't know. I'm sitting behind the table at Bernie Telsey's, and you're auditioning for me for a musical, but I have six more musicals on my on my dance card, and I often write on the picture and I pass it to Bernie and say, they're right for this one, call them in for this one. They may not be right for this one. So the audition process isn't just about what you're there for. It could be for a lot of things. And don't forget, Bernie Telsey, they cast 9,000 musicals. Right, you know, literally. So, literally. Today. So, yeah. so, so, you know, you're auditioning for a lot of stuff, not just specifically what you're in the right. room auditioning I for. know. The heartbreak is that you're so in the dark so uh, of much course. of the time because there's no time. And you don't get the feedback. There's no time. It's yeah. like, okay. Yeah. I know. Because it's so funny. Sometimes I, I even have to research more for people I actually know so that yeah. it doesn't just stay about like, oh, my yeah. God, and I miss you and let's catch yeah. up. And I watched some of the Legally Blonde reality show yeah. that you guys did. <laughs> um, and I felt like that there was sort of a toughness to you in that director persona that was – not as familiar to me well, as nothing real in reality so, TV. So I think we need to break it yeah. down because there's I think people real. watch okay. these things, Here's and the I'm re- here to say that Jerry Mitchell is the nicest, warmest, sweetest, most supportive human on the planet. Here's how a reality TV show works. Tell I've me. done two. Okay, we want to know. The first one I did was with Elizabeth Berkeley. It was called Step It Up and Dance for Bravo and Magical Elves, and they were. Wanting... I'm sorry, Magical Elves. Magical Elves were the producers. Okay. They produced. They produced the first. Uh, what was the runway one? You 
you know, Project Runway. Project Runway Sorry, yeah. I was just imagining yeah. little elves. And, okay. And, and Andy Cohen and everybody mm-hmm. over at Bravo was part of Bravo. And um, they wanted me to be the Tim Gunn of this dance show. Yes. And, you know, they put a microphone on you, and you're on the set from 8 in the morning until midnight every day, and they can get you at any minute. And what they do is they storyboard out their characters like they're storyboarding out a soap opera. And they slot you into the character you need to be for the show to have drama because they make the drama out of tiring you out, keeping you around all day, having you mic'd and waiting for you to explode. And not you know, feeding and that, you. And not feeding you. <laughs> feeding you shit. Um, so that's basically reality. That's reality TV. Yeah. So when I went to do Legally Blonde, Bravo wouldn't let me do Legally Blonde because I was under contract still. So I only could do like a total of four minutes in the whole series. So there was a whole negotiation about where would they use my four minutes and how would they get me here and get me there because they wanted me for the end and they had to have. So I was always off camera choosing the girls with Bernie and um, it was um, Heather and um, Paul Kanin. And I'm choosing with them, but I couldn't be on camera for a lot of it. Fascinating. Well, that was interesting. You know what? I learned a lot. We all learn a lot from (laughs) these things that are unnatural to us to a certain degree. But I got ahead of myself because I was so excited because Legally Blonde, I could really sing the whole thing for you right now, but I won't. (laughs) Because it's one of the greatest feminist musicals in. Well, Nell Benjamin and Larry, who wrote the music and lyrics, I mean, brilliant. Brilliant. And Heather, of course, who wrote the book. It was an, an amazing an amazing team. team to collaborate yes. with for my first time as a director choreographer. And Orfe was just here, actually. Yeah. And we and, and it's about been that. it's been everywhere. And it keeps going in so many productions all over the world. And it's, it's kind of amazing. It's incredible. So somehow this thing happens where because of the bike and the collarbone and the teacher and seeing your brilliance and her giving you the lessons and it's all like Billy Elliot with that with yeah. the, with the Michigan accent yeah. instead of <laughs> instead of Brit accents it's understood in your family that this is what you do yeah. and this is i would imagine not what anyone else in your small town was doing no and you I mean said, we had a, we had a we had a community theater so but you said that when you were 10 you already knew you were gay, yeah. although you weren't talking about yes, that. Yes. How do you know that? Because I, everyone who's gay knows that. Right. They but, know. But they know you, they're gay. You know you're gay. But did you have language for it, and you weren't saying it, or no. did you just know? I just something knew. Was I not... just knew that I liked boys more right. than I liked girls. So you had that thought. Oh God, yes. Yeah. Oh God, yes. And you know the funny thing about it is that I didn't come out to my family until I until was right thirty. Now. Until Do it I right was, now. <laughs> I'm coming up. Until I was thirty. Which right. Is, and yeah. so so, you know, I didn't grow up with Will and Grace. I didn't grow up with any of right. any gay, Ellen any wasn't, gay yeah. role models. Yeah. Right. So you're living in a super small town where your biggest fear as a gay person living in that kind of uh, environment is that everyone you love and you know loves you will no longer love you when you reveal your secret. That's why gay people don't come out. They're afraid of losing the love of the people they that are most important to them. And a really, really great friend of mine, Leif Green, who is, was an actor at the time, had been seeing he had come out to his family recently and he had seen I think a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist gave him a book and I don't remember the name of the guy who wrote it but in it it the book was called Coming Out an Act of Love. Wait, a really good friend a, when you were 30. No, no, not no, in no, high no, no, no. When I was 17 and oh, 18 we were is, in the Young back. Americans together. Okay. So so oh, wow. but but somewhere between 18 and 30 
you know, he, of course, my friends all knew I was gay, but my family didn't. And he gave me a book called Coming Out in Act of Love. I wish I knew the author's name. is a doctor, psychologist. Right. Easy to Google. Easy, simple, simple, simple thing for you to do. A test, not yeah. a test. Well, a routine for yourself. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, something. So draw a, mat, draw a target and put circles, as many circles as you want in the target. Put in the center of the target on the bullseye the people who you love the most. And work out from the target and write in the names of the people you love less. So in the center of the target, I wrote my mom and dad and my brothers. And then I wrote relatives until I got to friends, until I got to strangers. And they said, "Start, start working your way towards the target. So you start telling the people in the outer circle, and then you work on the next circle, and then you work on the next circle. And when you realize nobody's dropping you, nobody's saying, oh, get the fuck out of my right, universe. Or get off I my bus. You. If you started <laughs> yeah, with your bus yeah, driver, yeah. well, you get yeah. off here. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you work your way in, and then you tell, you tell the people you matter most to. So I chose to write a very specific letter to my parents and my brothers. In, to my parents, and in the, in the letter to my parents, I wrote a letter to both of my brothers. And the minute they got it, my father called me first. And my mother, and then my brothers. My brother said, "I don't know if you're gay. I mean, I've always known you're gay. It's no big deal. You know, I mean, literally, it was no big deal. Of course, I was thirty by then, but it was, you know, it was. And my parents and family have always supported me and knew nothing about the career I was choosing for myself. Right. I mean, it was such a foreign nothing. My father was a great. And still is a musician. He played the accordion in a band when he was a kid in Chicago. He played for Sophie Tucker at the Palmer House. Wow. Yeah. He was an he is an amazing accordion player. I would see my father. So I think I got some musicality from there because I would see him get up and play the accordion in our bar or at a wedding or something and literally turn the room on its ear. Everybody would be jumping and dancing and doing the polka and you know, it was crazy. I even put a polka in a, a show once because I was so inspired by like those memories. Yeah. So from the time you're 17, you come back, suddenly you're winning every track meet, even though you haven't been in school all year. Yeah. And then you go off to college. <laughs> yes. And, and now you're like, I want to dance. I love dancing. And this is well, what I, I want to do. I, or were you going off to college? I love dance even in school. And I was choreographing the, the plays at the, at the Village Playhouse and for the school. And then, and then I, I apprenticed at the Hope Summer Repertory Theater in Holland, Michigan. And I a lot of, met a lot of young actors who were seniors in college and, and different universities. I applied to those schools. I got accepted to Webster University and got a scholarship for the conservatory. And that's where I went. Do you sing also? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to sing a little? Mm, no, not really. <laughs> I do sing, but I I sang today. Okay. Um, so I went to Webster. I went to Webster, and I was in the conservatory freshman year. I got my equity card at the Muni Opera. Sophomore year, huge. By the way, no small thing. That must have been no a great small day. Thing. It, was, it was incredible, and did that whole summer thing, and then went back for my sophomore year. And Tony Stevens, God bless him, who's gone, great choreographer was coming through town, and I auditioned for a Dr. Pepper commercial. I'm a pepper, you're a pepper. Yeah, Wouldn't you like to be a pepper? I would. Got a Dr. Pepper commercial. A, a, First a national, regional or national? National commercial with David Naughton, the pepper guy. Okay. I think, who was the werewolf, remember? Yes. So I'm in this commercial with him, and I have to join SAG, of course, and then I start getting checks. Now, I'm in college, right? So yeah. I'm getting these residual checks, and I'm going, Wow. Banking the checks, spring break comes. My friends who I met at the Muni say, come to New York for spring break. I've never been to New York. I come to New York. I hang out with them for for a week. They're going to an audition because they all have equity cards. They say, you've got an equity card. Come with us. Okay. Put on my clothes. Go to audition for Brigadoon for Agnes DeMille. 
one audition and I get a Broadway show. And they didn't get it. I got a Broadway show. Go back to school. I said, I got a Broadway show. They said, right. we'll give you credit for your junior year to go do the Broadway show. It's supposed you to just s- have to take one government the class show, The show is supposed back. to start in September. Unbelievable. Michael Bennett and Bob Avian come through town with a tour of Chorus Line. And I go to the Fox in St. Louis and audition for that. I get that. So I go on tour all summer after my sophomore year in a Chorus Line. And then I leave a chorus line and come to Broadway to do Brigadoon. Do Brigadoon. Brigadoon closes. My dad comes to the closing week because they had the bar. My mom came to the open. My dad comes to the closing. Let me drive you back to school. Well, Dad, I'm going to stay for two weeks and see what happens. I got to audition because if I don't, if I, if I don't, I got to either sink or swim. The next day, I go to an open call for uh, swings for Woman of the Year with Lauren McCall. I get, I get Woman of the Year. I go into Woman of the Year. School says we'll let you finish the year. Of course they do. <laughs> six months to the day, I signed a six-month contract. I book the Best Lore House in Texas, the film, with Tony Stevens choreographing. I go out to Hollywood and make the Best Lore House in Texas, and I call school and say, I'm not coming back. I, 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 I'm working now. Now I'm in. I'm in. And I come back to New York, and I get show after show after show television, Broadway, whatever, and I'm working and dancing and working with choreographers. And, you know, the rest just took off and I did what I did. And then eventually when I won a Tony Award for Lacage, the college invited me back and gave me an honorary degree. So I, my parents got to see me get a degree because it was a big thing to I'm leave sure. college for my family because no one went to college. My brothers didn't go and I was on a full scholarship. So it was a big thing to give that up. Okay. That is a whirlwind. Yeah. Was it heaven? It was the same as my energy. You know, my energy is like... Yeah. And my when I think about it, the energy, the way things came and the way I went, the energies sort of matched each other. You know, it was always moving at a fast clip. I mean, I think about so much when I met you, it was when I auditioned for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. and uh, <laughs> And I feel like... I want to say thank you. Well, it was amazing. (laughs) I remember two things. I remember when I got cast in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, thinking, there's been a terrible mistake here. (laughs) And I spent every audition saying, you guys know I don't do this, right? (laughs) Like, really, this is so nice of you. I love hanging out with you guys, and I can't wait to see the show when you open, was sort of my experience. Well, Michael Mayer, who was the director and is quite brilliant, uh, and Andrew Lippa, who did the new songs and was the musical director. Andrew and I had met doing Broadway Bears. Um, And Michael actually saw a production of Follies that I choreographed at the Paper Mill Playhouse with Ann Miller. And and he asked me after he saw that production and saw my work in that production. And, you know, the show, Charlie Brown, as I remember it, and David did the set. David, David Gallo. Gallo. And the set was, wow, Rap. bright and the way it moved. And it was such an exciting thing for me to do as a first show because it was simple. It was small, small cast. And and working with Andrew and, and watching Michael work and learning from him, you know, we took a shot. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I and think we all feel that way. got my foot in the door. Definitely. You know? I, the crazy thing about... I wanted to be a choreographer when I was 25, but I didn't get that opportunity until I was 40, right? That's crazy. I was 40 when I choreographed my first Broadway show. 
And and the process was when I was 25, it was 85, and AIDS was killing everybody mm-hmm. off. And I always say this, that dance is innately a sexual expression. And I think choreography sort of fell out of shows because people were afraid of the physical contact. And I think it affected musicals because we went into the whole British sung musical. And, you know, Les Mis didn't even have a choreographer listed. And these shows were coming in that really didn't express themselves physically. And then suddenly it started to pick up again. And now look, 13 musicals, 12 musicals, 11 musicals, all new numerous fabulous choreographers working young a whole nother generation of choreographers who are becoming choreographer directors working on broadway and you know it's sort of rebirthed itself but the aids crisis i think hit it in a way that we weren't even aware of when it happened that's really interesting it's a really interesting way to look yeah. at it when billy porter won his Tony for Kinky Boots after you won and gave like the most beautiful speech. And I felt like it was really, I mean, you've been up there before, but it was really a way for people to get to know you in that Mm. moment fully. He talked about you bringing an old friend along for the ride. Mm. How did you and Billy know each other? When Billy was 19, I was choreographing one of my first shows out of town. Um, I, it was called, um, Heart's Desire. And Jody Mocha was working with me as my associate, and she knew Billy from Pittsburgh, from Danny Herman. And so she said, let's call Billy, and he'd be great for this. Billy came in an audition for us, and I offered him the part. He was still at Point Park in Pittsburgh, uh, I think, in school. Okay. And he decided, or Carnegie Mellon. He was a Carnegie Mellon. He went back to school. He wanted to go back to school and finish school. And I said, go. Go do it. Well, then we met up on Greece. I was Jeff Calhoun's associate on Greece. And Billy, we cast Billy as the teen angel. And Billy and I became friends. And we we socially knew each other, but we worked together then. And then we stayed in touch. He did a lot of Broadway Bears. He came out with his own album. He had won Star Search. He performed in Broadway Bears for me. And then he went off to write and start directing and working with directors because, as he says, he couldn't find roles that he thought were worthy of his attention. And then we were working on the show, and I said, Billy, I want you to – he had he had, he had written me, but I was thinking about him. And you I are. said, you come and read this. And I did a very, very quiet reading, and Harvey read Charlie that day Oh, because we didn't have a Charlie yet. And Billy read Lola and Danny Sherman came in and read Don. And that was the and first was this time. just you guys sitting just around a, a table? Just a table, just sitting around right. a table, not singing anything, just reading. And we played the songs as we knew them. And, you know, everybody left. And I said, I told you, I that's Lola. That is Lola. And so we we stuck with Billy through the other readings. And then you know, he got the part. Did you have to fight for him? Was there a moment where they wanted a star or was it just so obvious? I didn't have to fight for him, but it was, I had to convince a few people that he was it. Mm -hmm. And trust me on this, right? And Stark Sands, who was my first choice for for, um, Charlie, couldn't do a couple of the readings because he was doing a TV series. But I wanted Stark. I wanted Stark. And I kept saying, it's Stark Sands. It's Stark. I'm telling you, it's Stark. Finally, Stark came in and he read two scenes and sang a song for us. He walked out of the room and I went, and they said, yes. 
And it was it was done. It was done. You know, a lot of my guests tell really horrifying audition stories that are funny now. Yeah. And at the time, they were ready to go back to Kansas because yeah. they were so mortified. Have you ever had it happen where you so believed in someone and you bring them in and they don't knock it out of the park or yeah. some version of that? Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, it happens. It happens a lot. I, I've been fortunate. That hasn't happened to me in leading role as much as it's happened in little smaller bit parts. Right. But the thing is, is that you have to find, you You may think it works, then you find it doesn't. And maybe it's, it needs to go another direction. And you find a way to write it. That's yeah. your job of your writers. Let's make this work. I mean, the actor isn't that bad. The right. actor's really got some stuff going on for them. Let's work to their strengths, get rid of the stuff that maybe doesn't work for them, and write some stuff that does. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you know, it's a give and take. Legally Blonde, was that the first time where you were part of oh, the yeah. create of creating oh, yeah. the piece? There were no writers on Legally Blonde. Well, how did you know how to do that? And were you scared? Well, I'd already I'd already done seven musicals, eight musicals right. with nine, I think nine musicals right. I had done on Broadway okay. with Michael Mayer, Jerry Zachs, many with Jack O'Brien. So and, you love Jack O'Brien. Oh God. Yeah. We'll talk that's a whole that's nother it. chapter. That's another and show. Then, and then as an as an associate with Bob Avian, Michael Bennett, and Jerry Robbins. Right. So I grew up in the room. I grew up in the College of Musical Theater. I mean, I had the best teachers in the world and I was a sponge all the time. Not only with them, but the whole process of the musical, right? And I was a swing when I was on stage in Woman of the Year and in Barnum. So I was working backstage as a swing and assistant and I was learning all of the the whole show, the whole picture, not just a tr just not one track, but the whole track. And how Joe Layton put that together. And so I'm taking all that information and constantly processing it. So when when Legally Blonde came along, Hal Luftig said, I, I want to talk to you about something, took me to a meeting. It was, it was Mike, Kristen, Hal, and Dory. Now, Mike and Kristen gave me my first job as a choreographer and were about to give me my first job as a right. director. Because they, they produced Charlie Brown. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and Hal's there and Dory and... Who's Dory? Dory Bernstein, okay. who I'm working on another project with. Yes, but we'll so get to that. She, she, they put the script down, and it, it the movie script, not the not the Broadway script, the movie script, and they go, and the DVD, would you be, in? I said, oh, I can tell that story right now. That's a musical waiting to happen. I've been dumped. We've all been dumped like Al, and then gone after what we really wanted yeah. and found ourselves along that journey. I said, yeah. that is, I'm ready this. to tell this musical. And so we started to look for authors. And a lot of people had sent in CDs to the producers of them doing versions, songs that they thought would fit into the Broadway musical based on the film. I said, don't, don't tell me who they are. Put all the songs on one CD with lyric sheets and put them like A, composing team, B, composing team, C, composing team. They did. I went to the beach. I turned everything off. I listened to it over and over. And I came back and I said, it's, it's group C. And Group C happened to be Larry and Nell. And they got hired to write the show. And then we had to find a book writer. And we were looking, we were looking, we were looking. And Mike, I think, had said, did you see um, Freaky Friday, where it was Lindsay Lohan, mm -hmm. which Heather wrote the first script of that movie. And I went out and met her. And, she, and I read a movie she had written the night before I met her about sorority sisters. And I went, oh, my God, this girl has the, she has voice. the voice. She knows what this is. And I met her, and she walked to the table in a skirt of a little pink, a little blonde ponytail on a person. I went, 
are you Elle Woods? And she, and that was it. It was done. It was just done. I knew she could, she could do it. And that was the process. And then we went to town. And so that whole process of writing was us all working together. You know, certainly they were doing the writing and I was telling them how I could make it work on stage or couldn't make it work on stage and suggesting ways mm-hmm. to, to change it up. But we did that whole process and they had written an amazing first act and we did a reading and everybody responded very positively. They went off to write the second act. The second act came in and it wasn't such a positive response from the producers. And I said, calm down. This is how we're going to solve it. I told Hal, rent a house in the Hamptons and we'll all go there for two weeks and I'll come out with a new second act. We all went to the Hamptons together. I cooked. Heather and I Heather and I shopped in the morning, went to the gym. Larry and I were writing songs like mad. Heather would come back, write scenes. We would, I would cook, I would cook, I would cook. And we'd sit down each, each night and read what we did and listen to what they did. And by the end of two weeks, we had a new second act. And we were on our way. Boom. That, and that was an amazing experience to yeah. learn that process of writing, working with the writers and how you can help guide what the finished product will be. And certainly that was what we did with Kinky Boots, Harvey and I and Sin. We worked very closely together. Did you know Harvey or Cindy Lauper before Kinky yeah, Boots? Yeah, I had worked with Harvey on Hairspray and the Legally Belong. I mean, Hairspray and the Lacage Revival. Okay, of course, and yeah. And then Cindy I knew from... I choreographed the gay games in New York City, and Cindy performed in them, and I choreographed her with 50 drag queens. And then she asked me to do her video remake, and then uh, she did Broadway Bears for me a couple times. Was there ever a time from the time you were 17 until things really cooked for yeah, you, yeah. Where you where you really struggled? I feel like between the day I gave up dancing on Broadway till I got my first Broadway show, which was about a 14-year window, because I stopped dancing at 26. Did you have an injury? Were you exhausted? No, or I did just, you just I want just to choreograph? No, I just wanted to choreograph. Uh-huh. I didn't want to perform anymore. So 26, I stopped really performing, and I, and I was trying to get a Broadway show desperately, and maybe trying too hard. Mm-hmm. And then I had a big breakup with my first boyfriend, and I was 30. And I went back into the Will Rogers Follies. And I was still trying to get a Broadway show. And Tommy Toon, who did the show, I was Eric Shepard at ICM, who's no longer here, was working with Tommy Toon. And they wanted Tommy to do a movie, and Tommy didn't want to do it. And he said, talk, call, talk to Jerry, I think, was what happened. And after the show at 11.30, I was called to 757th Avenue to meet a producer and a director. And I went to 757th Avenue at about 11.30. They're doing a night shoot. I walk into the lobby of this building, and there's a big red Ferrari parked in the middle of the lobby. And I'm going, wow, what's going on? And I walk around the corner. I meet Ron Schwari and a director named Marty Brest, who... I didn't know who he was. And they say, we're, we're doing this scene and there's some dancing and the, the star isn't really comfortable and he's, he wants us to cut it, but we don't want to cut it. Could you come and watch him take dance class tomorrow? And I said, sure. So they said, okay, here's the music. Listen to the music. So I go to dance class. I listen to the music. I walk in and Al Pacino is taking a tango lesson. Uh-huh. And I'm like... And they're going, and they're there too. And they go, see, he's not remembering anything. I said, he's not being taught choreography. He's being taught a lesson. There's a difference. Sure. I said, he's got to be taught a routine that he can repeat. That's the problem. So I started to routine 
the, the number. And in that afternoon, I did half of that dance in one afternoon. They said, can you come back tomorrow? I said, sure. Finished it the next day. Ron Shuari threw some cash in my hand and said, you have just saved my ass. And everybody was happy. And um, they then made a deal to pay me, but he was so happy because literally he wanted to cut the scene because he wasn't learning. We did it. The rest is history. We what filmed it? it. We totally. filmed it, and it's it was done. It was done. What? So that was your first uh, first movie movie with as a Al Pacino as a choreographer. Yes, and so because of that, and right. because of that tangle, Meryl Streep, the object of a uh, uh, one true thing, the object of my affection, uh, uh, meet Joe Black in and out. I mean, movie after movie after movie stars who had to dance. Uh, in a little teeny scene, but wanted a choreographer on set so they didn't look ridiculous. Right, of course. And and the and the in and out dance was fabulous with yeah. Kevin Klein, who was yeah. brilliant. You know, I just got these wonderful opportunities while I'm still waiting to get a Broadway show. And also, the thing about you, which I know from personal experience, is I will never forget, and I could cry right now as you took me aside and you said, Alana, I promise you, you will feel like a dancer. <laughs> I will never let you look stupid. I, I, I will never let you. And I know you. If you did that for me, you certainly did well, it for Michael, Meryl Streep. Michael Street. Bennett taught me that yeah. when I was young. He said, if they look bad, you look worse. It's hard. You're vulnerable when you when you aren't a trained dancer and you're being asked to do a dance. I know. But the other thing is I remember <laughs> is you'd come up. You're like, let me just show you. And you would literally do it. Like you take the blanket and you swing it around. And you're like, can you just do it? Can, if you could come out every night just at this moment and, and put that. on the Lucy wig, that would be amazing. <laughs> also, I now understand this is a long time ago now, that show. And knowing your winery roots, I remember on opening night coming into my dressing room, and it may not be a big deal now, but it was my first really expensive bottle of champagne. <laughs> that was your, it was some voof. And yes, that was like, yes. And I just was like, okay. <laughs> I'm sure the, and then I looked, it wasn't from the producers. It was from you. And I will never forget that. And I have made that tri- my tradition yeah. for opening night gifts. Like that's a nice gift. It's a, it's a great gift. It's a good, and it never, never goes out of style. No, nope. So you have really been able to take the lessons and the gifts that your mentors gave you when you talk about Michael Bennett and Bob Avian and Jerome Robbins and all yeah. of the and Jack O'Brien and all of these people who you watched and admired and then were able to kind of take their style and then blend it with your yeah. warmth and style. Kinky Boots obviously has become an international sensation. Yeah. Kind it of is, crazy. It's incredible because it is one of the most complicated, simple stories, right? You know, it's... that's what's really interesting. I remember Marsha Mason, who's dear friends with Jack O'Brien, and I think she said, it's like peplum. It's like it's like a necessary milk. And um, and I, I'll never forget that because it's extremely simple. Yeah. But I always say that I think for me... What's that? The simplicity, the universe, the universal message, but I think everybody finds themselves either in the drag club version side of the story, or in the factory side of the story, and you know the character Don, Danny Sherman's character, the bully. There are a lot of men who see him and go, "Well, if he can put on the kinky boots, then so can I." So they end up in a very happy place at the end because they think, "Well, it was." It was painless. And it's propelled by Harvey's book, but Cindy's incredibly infectious score. So yeah. that's a big, 
big plus. Yeah. So what are you doing now? So now I'm working with another great team, Jim Valance and Brian Adams, songwriters, and uh, J.F. Lawton and, God bless him, Gary Marshall, who was with us till the very uh, last year on um, the Broadway musical Pretty Woman. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's getting that ready for Broadway. Wow. And it's very exciting. Very exciting. Great team, great, great collaboration, great writers. I actually, when I saw the movie when it came out, what, 26 years ago, I was looking for a Broadway show as a choreographer, and I tried to get the rights to it. Are you serious? <laughs> I went to Mark Sindroff, and I said, I want to turn this into a musical. Of course, I tried that with Hairspray, too. I was a, I was a nobody, so everybody just laughed, right? So that didn't happen. Brian Adams, it turns out, tried to get the rights to it or talked with Disney at the time, Touchstone, and he couldn't do it. So J.F. and Gary both had the possibility, and it was Paula Wagner, the producer, who brought them together and shepherded this whole idea. And then we met, and I said, look, the thing, and Brian wasn't involved yet, and I said, it needs an original score. That's what, when you take a movie and you bring it to the stage, there's one new element you can add that wasn't in the film, and that's an original score. Mm -hmm. And Legally Blonde had it, Kinky Boots had it, and now Pretty Woman will have it. And that's the thing that makes it a musical. you know. And if I were doing a ballet of Pretty Woman, then I'd probably have a ballet composer compose a ballet. But you know, the element that you're bringing to the musical is the new score. And that's what's exciting about it. So are you like holed up in the Hamptons in a house and are you no, cooking and where are you guys been, doing well, it? Well, Brian, Brian, like Cindy on Kinky, has a responsibility to tour because of their record. He's he's going on tour all the time. So we work mostly around his schedule, but also my schedule. I'm I'm crazy busy and JF's busy in, in L.A. So we find blocks of time to get together and write and we work and write. And then so now we're just we're here in New York doing a three week reading. And then we have another one planned in the fall. And then sometime next year, we'll be going into production to come into Broadway. So are there already stars attached to the no, show? No, no, no. are just not, bringing we're, in people we're, to kind of flesh it out. We're with really you. not there yet. I'm really working on the structure. I like to get the structure right first. Mm-hmm. So, Well, if you had like a box with a necklace and you mm-hmm. open the box yes. and like, <laughs> and then you handed it to me and then I like put my hand in and, and then go, you... That will, that will be in the show. That's good. That's iconic. It I mean, there, there are things there. Are, you know, the funny thing about it, a musical that's such a it's dangerous. It's an iconic film. But ultimately, it's a Cinderella story. Totally. And there's something really powerful about that still today. And um, are you adapting it? Do you feel in certain ways to to yes, mesh yes. with the times we yes. live in? I want it to be. I so wanted, it's a Cinderella. Story. I want it. No, I want it to exist in a timeless period, right? I don't want to bring cell phones out and all that crap. Yeah, it it's not necessary. Not for the story. It's a romance. It's a romantic story. And uh, so, yeah. But there are things in the film that I want to honor, and certainly things that Gary brilliantly did. And I was, I've been such a fan of Gary sure. Marshall's my whole life. Sure. I grew up on Gary Marshall television and movies. And so it's, it's, and to have spent a year and a half with him, JF and Gary and I and, and the boys, uh, 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 Jim and Brian, we all finished a draft before Gary passed. That's great. And um, Gary had this calendar. And Heather, his uh, associate producer who works with him, she, she told me about this. And he had, 
and it's all in hand writing, right? And on the days, there were big W's on the day in the calendar. W, big W, big W, big W. And once in a while, a little L. And I said, what, are, what do those represent? Win, win. These are days that were won. These are win days, win days, win days. And the L was a lose day. That was the day he lost a softball game. <laughs> but I mean, Gary was such a positive guy and a funny guy. And the experience of watching him always try to find the humor and the heart in the piece, that's what I love. And that's what I believe in too. So at the end of, you know, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Gene Wilder says something like, you know what happens to the boy who got everything he wanted? He lives happily ever after. Yeah. Where are you with that right now? I'm very fortunate. I have a great partner, Ricky Schroeder. And, uh, He's really cute we have and a talented. Great, and very talented. And um, we have a beautiful new home, and we have a pretty good life. And we're just uh, you know doing what we love to do and very fortunate and blessed and feel great about that. I've got goals. I'm going to do the Bye Bye Birdie with Jennifer Lopez, and they asked me to come back as director-choreographer, which I'm really excited about. So to be able to direct and choreograph one of these live musicals for television is certainly a thrilling, exciting thing. I have choreographed a lot of films. I'm in the process of reading some films as a director of a film, which is something I would love to take a shot at. A I musical wanna, film, I, or would you be interested in a non-musical well, film as well at this point? I'd be interested in any film that, a I, story thought, that... I thought I could definitely tell the story, yeah. right? I don't want to do a film that I can't tell the story, that I don't feel like I can actually control this story. And as you know, what's the point of doing anything if you don't want to be there 24-7? Because you're going to be there 24-7. That's the greatest thing about our lives, is I feel, or my life per personally, is that in all of this time, 30-some years, I don't really feel like I've worked. To be able to get up and go do what I do and go at 8 in the morning and come back at 10 and say, I'm going to do it again tomorrow and it doesn't feel like work mm -hmm. is kind of the most amazing blessing. I have great family, you know, so I have a lot of, I have a lot, a lot, a lot of great things in my life. The biggest thing is like taking care of the dancer aches, you know, oh, my back, oh, yeah. my knee, oh, my shoulder, oh, my this. It's like, you know, the, the, all of the years of turning out is starting to catch up with me. My brothers have both had hip replacements and I go, oh, don't tell me I'm next. Are we the golden retriever family? <laughs> we probably are. So, you know, that's, that's like, you know, how do you, how do you keep up? Well, you're doing all right. Thank You're you. doing just fine. Jerry you Mitchell. Too. You too. This was incredible. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media.
Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post-production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.